Well, it is Welcome Weekend, so uh, welcome. Welcome to any returning students who are here. Welcome to all of you who have joined us online, and welcome to each person that is right here with us today. Well, uh, school's starting, so here's the first quiz. First quiz of the year, are you ready? Pop quiz, didn't know you were gonna get that. So here's the question. Uh, what one word would you use to describe all of the following things? What one word describes all of the following things? Here's the first one. Da Vinci's Mona Lisa. Now you gotta listen to the next one, here it is. course, that's Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. Uh, how about this one? The Odyssey by Homer. And finally, Falling Waters House by Frank Lloyd Wright. Now, within their genres, what label, what word would you give for those four things? Timeless. Oh, I heard of some good ones. Oh, she's not supposed to be smiling. Well, that might have been a mistake. But <laughs> somehow or other, somehow or other, all of those would be called masterpieces. They are all masterpieces. That's why we're all familiar with them even today. Uh, they are masterpieces. A masterpiece is a work of outstanding artistry, skill, or workmanship. A, ma a masterpiece kind of displays, puts on display all the ability and the genius and the glory of the one who created it, the one who made it, the one who put it together. So here's the question for today, though. What is God's masterpiece? And the answer is... The church, very good. We're tempted to say, well, it's, you know, he spoke uh, creation into existence, and certainly it's, a, it's an incredible masterpiece. And of course, uh, human beings are the pinnacle of creation and his masterpiece, but the Bible says that God's ultimate masterpiece is the church. Well, where does it say that? I invite you to take your Bibles, print or digital, and turn to Ephesians chapter two. We're actually gonna kind of be rummaging through Ephesians quite a bit here. And so turn to Ephesians chapter two to a familiar verse, verse 10. Ephesians chapter two, verse 10 says this. For we are God's handiwork. The New Living Translation translates it Masterpiece, for we are God's masterpiece, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And you say, hey, wait a minute, that's talking about me. Yes and no. Notice the pronouns are plural. When Paul says we, he's talking about the church. He's talking about the church. We as the church, you and I together, we are God's masterpiece. It's not just you know, one stroke of the brush in the Mona Lisa that makes it a masterpiece, although each stroke is something that contributes to the whole. It's not one note in Beethoven's fifth that makes it great, although each note is important. It's no single line in the Odyssey that stands on its own, makes it. 
No one brick in the falling water house makes it grand, but the house needs the brick. It's the whole painting, the whole symphony, the whole house, the whole thing, and it's the whole church all together that is God's masterpiece that doesn't devalue, devalue you as an individual at all. Listen to what Paul wrote in another place. In 1 Corinthians 12, 27, Paul wrote this, all of you together are Christ's body. That's the masterpiece, all of you together, and each of you is a part of it. You're each a part of it and each important and integral part of it. So what sets God's masterpiece apart from all these other masterpieces? God's masterpiece will endure forever to his eternal praise and glory. Turn over a chapter in Ephesians to chapter 3. This is what we read there, starting with verse 10. So Ephesians chapter 3, verse 10. Talking about God, God's intent was that now, through the church, through you and me, through us together, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly realms according to his eternal purpose that he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So what God did in Christ is to be um, this, this manifold wisdom of God in Jesus Christ. Manifold wisdom, that's kind of the, um, the, uh, the great variety of his wisdom. Uh, the many-faceted wisdom of God, the fullness of the wisdom of God is seen in Jesus Christ, and it's through the church, through, through us, that that wisdom will be revealed and displayed uh, for eternity to his eternal praise and glory. The genius of da Vinci is revealed in his masterpiece, Mona Lisa. The virtuosity of Beethoven is evidence in the Fifth Symphony. The brilliance of Homer can be read in the Odyssey. The ability of Frank Lloyd Wright can be seen in the house that he designed. But God's unequaled genius, his supreme wisdom, his unmatched virtuosity, his unequaled brilliance is displayed in his masterpiece, the church, you and I together, we are the church. Tom Julian, former director of our um, mission, also an elder and pastor for many years here in our church, he said it this way. Paul reveals the church as God's masterpiece. The purpose of human history is the calling out and perfecting of the bride. She is the focal point of God's great plan. She is the means by which God reveals his manifold wisdom. She is the object of the Lord's eternal affection. She exists already in all her glory in the mind of Christ. One day she will be displayed in that glory before the watching world. Love that. What compares to that? What possibly compares to that? What, what else has that kind of weight and glory and potential and future? What can compare to God's masterpiece, the church. Now, I know, I know what you're kind of feeling right now. You're feeling a little bit of tension. You're thinking, yeah, but wait a minute. Um, I know people have been deeply disappointed. People have been hurt. People have even been abused by people in the church or by the church. How, how can that be the manifold wisdom of God? And, and you would be right. The church as we now experience her 
is far from perfect. People in our church, we sin against God and against each other even as God is perfecting his bride. Even as Jesus Christ through his spirit is sanctifying us and making us holy, we still sin. Maybe it's helpful to um, think about the church in terms of topside and underside. This is also something that I need to give Tom Julian credit for. But, uh, you know, it can be really easy to get completely fixated on the underside of the church. What do I mean by that? Think of a car. A car has a topside and an underside. Now, in your, in your mind's eye, put yourself face up on one of those little dolly things that mechanics use to scoot under the car, okay? Can you put yourself there and look up? And what do you see? You see pipes and tanks and clamps and springs and bolts and dirt and rust and grime and grease, and it's not pretty, is it? It's ugly. And if all you ever knew about a car was that view of it, you would say, cars are terrible. I don't want to have anything to do with cars. But then you get out from underneath, not just looking at the underside, but you look at it from the top side. And now, ooh, it's a whole other thing. It's beautiful, it's shiny, uh, and it's sleek, and uh, you can still smell the new car smell and the leather and the seats, and it's a lovely thing to behold, and you get a whole other perspective. It's easy, it's very easy uh, for uh, all of us, including pastors, maybe especially pastors, to get completely fixated on the underside of the church. And I would say, figuratively speaking, my hands are dirty and grimy and greasy with working with the underside of the church at times. And it can be disheartening and discouraging. But I know, I have some perspective. As you well know, I believe that the church is a workshop. All right? Vehicles come in to be repaired. And so there's that kind of work that has to be done. But I also know to step back and take a look at the top side. Look at the church as Jesus sees the church. We just read in in. The Lord's mind, it is complete and perfect and glorious as it will be one day. And, and, to, and to consider and see, again, how the church is God's masterpiece, how glorious it is. Let's, to, let's take a little time to do that this morning, is look at the top side of the church together and remember its glory and its purpose and, and be in wonder and awe again by the fact that we get to be part of it. He's invited us and called us to be a part of his masterpiece. So what actually are we talking about? What is it, the church? What is the church? Well, first of all, it is ecclesia. Everyone say ecclesia. Ecclesia. Right, that cleared it up, didn't it? All right, (laughs) what does ecclesia mean? Well, ecclesia was a a common Greek word uh, that was used in Christ's time, and it, it referred to any assembly or group of people who had been called together for a purpose, for a specific reason. Um, uh, This next uh, picture here I took in Ephesus, and this is from um, from the amphitheater in Ephesus that shows uh, where there was an assembly of people, and they had a purpose, and their purpose uh, of assembling 
was to kick Paul out of town. All right, they, they, they got together, and that was the purpose, the reason for that assembly. And the text calls them an ecclesia. The text calls them an ecclesia, this gathering of people that had this purpose to kick Paul out of town. But that, so the New Testament uses the word that way a couple of times, but over a hundred times, it, it gives it a new meaning. And the new meaning of the word has to do with uh, true Christians called out from the world uh, to worship Jesus and belong to him. Here's how we define it. So, so the New Testament kind of gives a new, fills this word, this common word, with a new definition. And uh, this is what it means. A group of people who have been called out of the world, called out from under the dominion of sin and Satan for the purpose of knowing and belonging to Jesus and of calling out others to know and belong to Jesus. So we've been called, we are a called out group of people. And we've been called out from the world, out from the dominion of Satan in order to know and belong to Jesus and call others to know and belong to Jesus. That is what ecclesia means. Now that we know what it means, let's get back to the original question. How is this, ecclesia, the church, God's masterpiece? What makes it God's masterpiece? I'm going to give you two, two reasons why we can think of it as God's masterpiece. Number one, the church is the revelation of Jesus in and to the world. The church is the revelation of Jesus in and to the world. Remember, uh, I quoted a verse earlier from 1 Corinthians, now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. This is Paul's favorite metaphor for the church, the body of Christ. And in Ephesians chapter one, you can turn back there if you're in Ephesians still, Ephesians chapter one at the very end of chapter one, Paul writes this in verse 22. Ephesians 1 22, and God placed all things under his, that's Christ, Jesus Christ's feet, and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body. The church is the body of Christ, the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. So according to Paul, we, you and I together, we are an expression of the body of Christ in the world. Another way of saying this is to say that we, as the church, are the second incarnation of Jesus Christ. At Christmas time, we celebrate the first incarnation of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. The Son of God, the second person of the Godhead, uh, took on flesh and blood and was born into this world as a human being. That's his first incarnation. And he, he grew up and he walked and he talked. And he lived a sinless life so that he didn't have to pay for his sin. Instead, he could go to the cross and die in our place for us. Taking upon himself the righteous wrath of God against our sin. And then he resurrected, triumphant, over sin, Satan, and death, so that there's a gospel message that now there can be forgiveness of sin, we can be made right with God. And 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus ascended bodily into heaven. But that's not the end of the story of Christ in the world. That's not the end of it. Because 10 days later, 
on the day of Pentecost, the spirit of Christ descended and filled, indwelt all the believers who were gathered in Jerusalem. And that is the birthday of the church. You could call it the second incarnation of Jesus. Because what, what happened in a real sense is that Christ again became physically present on the earth through his people. Flesh and blood, breathing human beings. We are the second incarnation of Christ in the world. And so what Jesus began to do and teach in his earthly ministry, he continues and completes through us. We talked about this last week, didn't we? That in his first incarnation, Jesus, through his physical body on the cross, purchased our salvation. But now, through his spiritual body, the church, his masterpiece, he proclaims that salvation to every nation, tribe, and tongue. And so we are the second incarnation of Christ, which means we are the presence, the revelation, the expression of Christ in the world. We, you and I, are his hands and his feet. We are Christ in the world. Together we are a tangible expression of Christ's grace and truth to a broken and hurting world. Indwelt, gifted, and empowered by the Spirit, we are Christ's means of completing his mission. Wow. Okay, that's a mega privilege and a big responsibility, isn't it? Does the church look like Jesus in the world? Does the church reflect the beauty and the glory of Jesus in the world? Each one of us has a part to play in that. What does it look like? What, what, what should we be doing in order to, you know, actually we're, we're either contributing to the church displaying the beauty and glory of Jesus or we're detracting from it. <laughs> One or the other. How do we adorn the gospel? How do we reflect the truth of Jesus? Well, there's a lot of ways. Let me give you some suggestions. When knowing and belonging to Jesus is more important to us than knowing and belonging to the world. If we're called out from the world to belong and to know Jesus, then knowing and, knowing and belonging to Jesus have to be our primary pursuit, not knowing and belonging to the world. How do we do that? Well, wow, we behold his glory in creation, we respond in worship of thanks and praise. In, in community together, we learn and help each other obey his good word and ways. That's a part of, of knowing and belonging to Jesus. How do we as a body reflect uh, and reveal Jesus in the world? Here's another one. When our greatest desire is to be a part of his masterpiece, rather than just fitting him into our own personal individual masterpiece. Okay, uh, we are all very tempted to become our own individual personal masterpiece. I'm, I'm building me, and I hope God fits in somewhere in that picture. He gets to be a brushstroke or a line or a brick in my building. Something is deeply wrong with that but it's very easy to fall into. If we are going to be the revelation of Jesus in the world, then the question isn't how can God be a part of my masterpiece 
Instead, we say, I submit to his masterpiece. Help me to find my part. That's the greatest thing that I can possibly do with my life is to figure out how I can be a part of his masterpiece. How about this? Uh, When we're focused outward rather than inward, when we're more focused on the mission of the church than our preferences at, at church, when we're willing to take risks to radically love others with grace and truth, when we're willing not to get stuck fixated on the underside of the church, but be willing to step up and and look at the church from the top side and renew our vision for what God has called us to, when we're willing to love each other with thick skin and tender hearts, forgiving rather than being easily offended and holding on to hurts, Okay, the list is long. I'm just giving you a sampling. But this is part of the deal of what makes the church the masterpiece of God in the world is that it reveals the truth of who Jesus Christ is. Number two, here's another reason. The church is the focal point or the focus of Christ's affection. In other words, Jesus loves the church. In our house, we have some framed, nicely framed paintings that our boys did when they were kids. They are worth nothing. No one will buy them. But to us, they are masterpieces. Why are they masterpieces? Because we love those boys. It's the love. It's the love that makes those masterpieces. And it's Christ's love for us that makes the church a masterpiece in the world. It's hardly because we're perfect, but it's because, it's because of his perfect love for us that makes us his masterpiece. Look, look, at, look at Ephesians chapter 5. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 5. And um, we're going to read a passage that we read at weddings, and we always think of husbands and wives. But did you know that it's not actually primarily in first order about husbands and wives? It's about Christ's love for the church. So let's read it, and this time don't think wedding dresses and all that stuff. Just concentrate on Christ and the church. Okay, Ephesians chapter 5, we're going to jump in at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. That's his vision. That's his goal. That's what he gave himself for. Incredible. That's how he sees it. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does for the church. For we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ in the church, that we are to become one. With Christ, his life lived through us, a revelation of him in the world. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Christ loves the church. The church is the apple of 
God's eye. It's the body for which Jesus gave and sacrificed his body. He loves us. And he is making us into something far greater than we could ever imagine. I, I, uh, I like this other quote by Tom Julian. <clears throat> Tom says, the church is a bride, the object of the eternal affection of the Lord, who is bringing her to perfection through his love. She's not a parenthesis in God's plan for the ages. It's the very center, the very heartbeat of God's plan for the ages is the church. You and I, together, the church. Guess what? I am a big fan of the church. Now, you would expect a pastor to say that, right? You would expect a pastor to say that. But I've, I've been a fan of the church for long before I became a pastor or even thought about or dreamed about becoming a pastor. I was a big fan of the church. Let me tell you a story. Might have told it to you before. When I was in fifth grade, I played Little League baseball. Or maybe it was, yeah, it was Little League. And so uh, we, we had a game one night, but rain came through and they called it off early. And so uh, one of the parents dropped me off at home. Nobody was at home. And so I, I you know, that was okay, no big deal, for about 30 minutes, and then I started to worry. All right. Then I went over to a neighbor's house and knocked, nobody there. Went over to another's neighbor's house, knocked, nobody there. Called a couple of my friends, nobody answered. And now it's like, ah, the rapture has happened and I've been left behind be because I was playing baseball. <laughs> I mean, I was sweating, I was crying. And then all of a sudden I remembered, oh, it's Wednesday night. It's prayer meeting night. Back then we had prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. And so we lived on 6th Street, right? And still in my little baseball uniform with the stirrups and the cleats and everything, I ran up College Avenue past Westminster down to the church, and I came in that back door, and there was everybody. <laughs> you know, I went and sat by my mom, and, and I, I, I remember having this kind of deep sense of peace and gratitude and saying, this is my family. This is my home. This is where I experience the love of God. And that's not just some hokey sentimentality. Uh, you know, I grew up in this church. This, I remember in a Sunday school class, and this church is where I gave my heart to Jesus Christ because of the faithful witness of those who were teaching the kids. And my dad died when I was six, I, but I grew up here, and I never lacked men to step into that gap and be like fathers and mentors to me. And... Um, <clears throat> When I was in junior high, think about how awkward and weird and annoying I might have been. I don't remember, but somebody put up with me. Somebody did, and continued to express the love of Christ to me as a weird teenager. And then I, I went to Grace College and, and had some ideas. I was an English education major, but someone in the church here challenged me with the fact that the church is God's plan for this age. And, and so as I said last week, Mary and I went to Germany to serve in church planning there, and this church prayed and supported and loved on us, just as we do with the Horners. It's this church that I've known the privilege of serving, and it's, why is that, why is that all so important? Because, of, because it's the love of Jesus Christ. We, Jesus loves his body, the church. 
He loves you and he loves me. And he wants us to know the fullness of his love as we live in community together with, with the people who might annoy us. They may wear too much perfume or clap on the wrong beat or talk too much or whatever. And yet it's through those people that I experience the love of God and, and I'm drawn out of myself. And, and we experience healing because it's the love of God working in us. It's the affection of God for his church that makes her a masterpiece. So what? Well, a lot, a lot of people, uh, you hear it today, say, well, I like Jesus, but not the church. You know, I, I, uh, I believe in Jesus, but I don't need the local church. Of course, this would have made no sense to the writers of the New Testament, because to belong to Jesus is to belong to his body, the church which is expressed locally in local congregations. <clears throat> there is no such thing as solo Christianity or siloed faith. We need each other. A Christian without a church is a Christian in trouble. We can't be Christ's masterpiece by ourselves. That's... that's this, it's inconceivable. It's like the brush stroke from the Mona Lisa saying, I can be Leonardo's masterpiece by myself. Or a note from Beethoven's fifth saying, I like Beethoven, but I'm not gonna be a part of his masterpiece. What is a note by itself? We had our little granddaughter over yesterday and she went over to the piano like she wanted to play it, so I lifted her up and put her on the chair. Bing! She hit one note. That was it. We clapped. <laughs> but it was not a masterpiece, right? You can't, cannot be a masterpiece on its own. You know, what would Jesus think if we say, I, li I like your bride, but I, I, I like you, Jesus, but I don't like your bride. I, I want to be loved by you, but not as your bride. You and I, we've been invited, we've been called to be a part of the greatest masterpiece of all time. It will outlast all others to the praise and glory of God forever and ever. There's nothing that compares to it. It's true that it can be difficult. The church now is rarely exactly what we want it to be, but it is just what we need. It's just what we need. And it's God's masterpiece. So, so what? You're invited into God's masterpiece. Now what? Make the choice to immerse yourself into it. Have any of you been to this immersive experience with Van Gogh, the Van Gogh um, exhibit? Okay, I see some hands. Looks really cool. It's been around the country where uh, you can buy a ticket and you go in and, and you can immerse yourself, kind of go into the paintings of Van Gogh. Well, guess what? You've been called into an immersive experience to immerse yourself into the greatest and grandest masterpiece of all time, the church. How do we do it? Well, you know what? You don't have to look any further than your bulletin because uh, how do we immerse ourselves and find our place in this grand masterpiece? Well, we say it simply, join a group and begin to serve. And in your bulletin today, you can find several groups. The gathering, which we talked about, uh, there are updates for women on some of the women's groups. And then men's team huddles. Wow. Uh, those are starting up. I encourage you to look at that. I'm going to lead one uh, around a book 
uh, called The Power of the Praying Husband, how to pray, how to learn to pray for your wife. But, but different groups that are starting up, and there's an insert with ways to serve, opportunities to serve in our church. Now what? Let's, let's immerse ourselves into the grandest and greatest masterpiece of all time. You are invited. 